One second, Abraham Van Rensselaer was smoking a cigar looking at the back of John Whipple's head. The next second, Abraham was gaping at him in horror amid the wreckage of broken glass and gunpowder. Before he could warn John of the man's face peering in through the second-floor window, a shot rang out, illuminating the candlelit room and the crimson stain spreading under John's shoulder. John Whipple leapt from his chair after being shot. "'Oh, Lord!' he cried, taking several steps outside the bedroom and into the hallway before collapsing at the top of the staircase. The shock wore off and the adrenaline kicked in after Abraham realized what had happened. He hopped over John's body and launched himself down the stairs and towards the front door to go after the prowlers shooting into his home. Abraham's grandmother, Maria Van Rensselaer, was safely ensconced in the master bedroom, but the rest of the women were gathered below in the kitchen, including John's wife, Elsie. She had just left her husband and went downstairs to sit in the kitchen's bay window. She was smoking a cigar there when a shot rang out, and she looked to the other ladies in the room who all took cover in the tiny cell that the home's enslaved cook lived in. The cook, Dinah, set the family dog loose to go after the assailant, but the dog refused. Meanwhile, Abraham had run out the front door with his gun, saw no one, and realized the folly in putting himself out in the open without knowing where the shooter was, or even how many of them there were. He walked back inside Cherry Hill and up the staircase, where John Whipple lie on the floor, gasping, and dying. This is Old Blood, the historical true crime podcast, and I'm your host, Elise. Welcome back to season three, and also welcome to my lovely sinus infection voice. This is unfortunately as good as it's going to get today, so bear with me. Before New York was run by capitalists and tycoons, it was run by the Hudson River Manor Lords, or in other words, rich folk who migrated from the Netherlands and were granted huge tracts of land along the Hudson River to colonize, called patroonships. The Hudson River connected New York City to their estates up north, 18th century New York was still a pretty feudal-looking place, as these patroons made their money by renting out their land to tenants, whom they had a large amount of control over. The largest and most successful of these was the 850,000-acre Rensselaerswick, named after Killian van Rensselaer, the Dutch merchant and patroon at the head of the Van Rensselaer dynasty in America. They weren't really lords, though they thought of themselves as such. They had no titles of nobility, but they were nonetheless regarded as American aristocracy. There are Van Rensselaers in the opening passage of Moby Dick, and its author, Herman Melville, was himself a Van Rensselaer. Edith Wharton, also a Van Rensselaer, wrote her novel The Age of Innocence based on her family, though she called them the Van der Luydens. 
Philip van Rensselaer, son of Killian, was a part of this dynasty, and in Albany, where he sold imports from the West Indies and exported other goods and materials down the Hudson River on one of his sloops. He was a Rensselaer and a Schuyler, which you might recognize as being the family Alexander Hamilton married into. Philip van Rensselaer married another Schuyler by the name of Maria Sanders, and began building a farmstead for her at Cherry Hill in present-day Albany, New York, in 1776. Philip was appointed commissary general during the American Revolution and began storing goods for the Continental Army at Cherry Hill. By 1787, Philip tore down the old farmstead and began construction on a new home. When Philip van Rensselaer died in 1798, Cherry Hill was taken over by his son, Philip P., and then later his daughter's husband, and also first cousin, which is super gross, Solomon van Rensselaer. Though Philip's wife Maria was still considered the mistress of Cherry Hill, where she lived out her last days when someone took a rifle and shot John Whipple through a second-story window. And by this time, the New York of 1827 was wildly different from the New York of her husband Philip and his father, Killian Van Rensselaer. The Hudson Manor lords were being replaced with railroad tycoons, New York City bankers, and canal builders. The construction of the Erie Canal in 1817 finally gave travelers a direct route through to the Midwest. Prior to the canal's construction, the Appalachian Mountains made it a bitch to get to the Midwest, and what travelers did get through were mostly from the South, having to go all the way through New Orleans first. A two-week stagecoach trip from Albany to Buffalo took only five days on a boat across the Erie Canal. And so, when it was built, it flushed New York with capital. Thus, these northern New York cities like Albany, Buffalo, Syracuse, and Rochester saw a sharp increase in population and in business. In fact, many historians argue that New York City was only able to become one of the world's major cities because of the Erie Canal, because it established New York City as America's primary port city. This was great for a lot of people, but not for the Hudson Manor lords who lost influence and land in this new America. Those like Solomon Van Rensselaer had a hard time keeping up with all of the new money entering New York because of the Erie Canal. Boo-hoo, some slave owners lost a bunch of money. Someone grabbed my tiny violin. Anyway... Solomon and his wife, Ariette, were still wealthy enough to attend a ball in celebration of the grand opening of the canal in 1825. Two years later, a Rensselaer by marriage, Elsie, was living at Cherry Hill with her husband, John Whipple, as boarders when he was murdered. Elsie was also a Lansing, one of Albany's oldest and largest families, the Lansings were mostly Smiths during the colonial era, but rose to prominence with the American Revolution. Elsie was the sole heir of Abraham Lansing, her grandfather. 
After her mother's death, she became the niece and ward of another Abraham Lansing. The traditional version of this story has Elsie's mother spoiling her so much that, after she died, Elsie became completely unmanageable. Nearly all accounts of this case illustrate Elsie as the stereotypical, hysterical woman, wild and prone to outbursts. So much so that her family locked her inside her room and nailed her windows shut so that she would stop sneaking out at night. One 1876 account of the case describes Elsie as, quote, possessed of beauty and fortune, though without much education and miserably defective in principle. Vain, weak, frivolous, wanton, and inconstant in character, and in conduct, imprudent, silly, lewd, presumptuous, and treacherous. End quote. The adjectives were overkill, but apparently the Lansings were correct to worry, for when she was allowed out, she met and later eloped with neighbor John Whipple. Elsie's guardian, Abraham Lansing, was furious. Almost the entire Lansing fortune was being left to her, and she went and married what he believed was a fortune hunter. She was only 14 years old when she married 23-year-old John, and he was, quote, a man without property or standing, end quote, a canal worker. In doing so, she had, quote, shown a total disregard for the wishes of her relatives, end quote. Rock on, Elsie. Elsie was kicked out of the family for a bit while her guardian tried doing everything he could to undo her marriage to John, but even as he failed doing so, he began to see that John Whipple actually wasn't all that bad. In fact, he had taken Elsie's inheritance and grown it significantly. By 1827, Elsie and John Whipple stayed at Cherry Hill, then run by her uncle through marriage, Philip P. Van Rensselaer. It was a convenient arrangement because John worked for the Delaware and Hudson Canal in Kingston, New York, and thus was often away traveling. He was also having disputes with some of the other canal workers, and with reports that some of them were slinking around the property— John was glad Elsie had the other Van Rensselaers with her. Everyone at Cherry Hill called the handyman Doc. It was a joke, like overweight cartoon villains named Skinny. The handyman was not educated and definitely not a legit doctor. He gained the nickname from the thick glasses on his face and the fact that he could just barely read and write, which made him more educated than others around the estate. Jesse Strang was not too bright, though he was good at blending in unnoticed, which is a good thing because he had faked his own death in 1825. He tied his horse to a tree, tore into his own bags and clothing, and made it look like he had been murdered. The doc later claimed that he did so in order to escape from an unfaithful wife, but you can see through this story on your own. Jesse Strang was a selfish man, unwilling to keep his word and assume responsibility for himself, so he lied about his wife cheating, thus spoiling her reputation, 
and then left her and his children back in Fishkill, New York, and took off for a new life without them. Jesse was on his way to Sandusky, Ohio, but only made it to Albany, New York. When he got to a coach station in Schenectady, he learned his luggage had been sent to Albany on an earlier coach, so he set off for Albany to retrieve it. Only once he got there, his stuff was nowhere to be found. While Jesse waited around for the stage office to fetch his trunk, he walked around the city to look for work in the meantime. Several days later, he found himself in Bates' barroom. In walked Maria Van Rensselaer, and I picture the barroom filled with whispers of, That's Philip Van Rensselaer's granddaughter but that might just be my overactive imagination. What is not an exaggeration is Jesse Strang being blown off of his feet when Maria Van Rensselaer was followed by her stunning relative, Elsie Lansing Whipple. Jesse turned to his friends to inquire about the blonde, telling him, I would not mind passing a night in her chamber. His friend allegedly replied, how do you know you can sleep with her until after you have tried? For I have. The friend was joking. He corrected Jesse, saying that the, quote, sprightly, playful, and giddy girl, end quote, as described by Jesse, was not a girl at all, but a woman, a wife of Mr. John Whipple. Quote, from my first seeing her, I experienced an increasing sensation of amorous desire said. Only several days later, on August 28, 1826, Jesse Strang agreed to work for Philip P. Van Rensselaer at his estate, Cherry Hill, under the assumed name of Joseph Orton, Doc Joseph Orton. He and Elsie did not have much contact at first, for one, Elsie was married and a known flight risk, so they kept close tabs on her. Whenever she did not accompany her husband on his business trips, the Rensselaers had Elsie sleep beside some of the other women of the household. And when Jessie first started working on Cherry Hill, the Whipples departed for Kingston, New York, for about a month. Upon her return, Elsie and Jessie began exchanging glances and a few kind words. After the household went on a nut-foraging excursion in the orchard, Elsie and Jessie were able to talk a bit more. But he was surprised the following night when she approached him, saying, "'Doc, I want you to write me a letter.'" At first, Jessie thought it was a trap— a wicked woman tricking him into declaring his love in the letter and then sharing it with her husband. In the end, his desire for Elsie won out, and he decided that if she was really flirting with him, then it was worth the risk. He wrote to her, asking about her intentions. Her reply, which came only half an hour after she received his letter, said something to the effect of, my motive is out of pure love for you. She wrote, The first time I ever saw you, I fell in love with your eyes, nor have I, while you are absent, any comfort or happiness while thinking of you. And if I am a married woman, I ran away to get married, 
and I can do so again. If your affections for me are as great as mine for you, you will write to me immediately and let me know. I have often expressed my opinion that there was no such thing as love, but I have now altered my opinion and am satisfied of its influence, and that you are the only one I ever did love. I remain your true and affectionate lover until death separates us. Her declaration of love inspired him to respond more freely to her, expressing his mutual attraction and saying, in Jessie's words, that if she could make up her mind to leave her husband and go with me, I would do all in my power to take care of and protect her. He couldn't understand what she saw in someone like him, he responded, but that, quote, I remain your true and affectionate lover, end quote. Thus began the love affair of Elsie Whipple and Jessie Strang, a.k.a. Doc Joseph Orton. Elsie's true feelings about Jessie will forever remain unknown, but from the information we have, it seems as though she might have played up the whole damsel-in-distress act in order to win Jessie's loyalty. Again, the truth about her marriage with John Whipple is vague, but she painted a sob story for Jessie about how loveless the marriage was about how he was cruel to her and only married her for her money, and since he now held the purse strings, Elsie lost access to her inheritance. Not that Elsie had much freedom to begin with, but now she also felt trapped with a man she did not want to be with and who held the keys to her money and future. So when Elsie stumbled upon Jessie, she began to view him as yet another key that would open more doors for her. She told Jessie that she loved him and was desperate to leave, but that they needed at least $1,200 with them in order to make it. She cared not where the place named was, Jessie said, that she would go to the ends of the earth to have me. This was fan-fucking-tastic for Jessie Strang, who was ready to screw people over and take off long before she was, and now he did not have to do it alone. And now he had more resources to make his dreams happen. He devised a plan in which he and Elsie would get the money they needed and then head to Montreal and tell John Whipple calmed down and stopped looking for Jessie Strang to kill him for stealing his wife— and then the two would go to Sandusky, Ohio. Elsie once told him that she wanted to run a public house of her own. Once they got to Ohio, he could help Elsie open up a tavern with which they would make their living. But despite belonging to New York's elite Rensselaer, Lansing, and Schuyler families, Elsie still had no way to lay her hands on that sort of money, at least not without her husband knowing of it. Elsie asked Jessie to forge a check in her husband's name, but Jessie told her it would be too easy to be caught, and besides, the doctor could barely write as it was. How could he pretend to be someone as educated as John? Fine, Elsie decided. Maybe Jessie Strang was right. Perhaps it was best to just kill John Whipple.
When Elsie suggested that Jessie Strang kill her husband, he responded with a moral outrage that only a man who had faked his own death and abandoned his family could summon. No, he would not be killing John Whipple. There must be another way to raise the money for them to run away. Elsie insisted that it was possible for them to kill John, take the money, and get away with everything. There were plenty of disgruntled canal employees who would have liked to see John hurt. And, anyway, he was always traveling with decent sums of money. It wouldn't be the most outlandish thing for John to return to Cherry Hill from Kingston, flush with cash, only to have thieves kill him for his money. Hell, Jesse didn't even have to do the killing himself. He could, quote, get some of those Irishmen to do it, end quote. And if Jesse did do it himself, Elsie said she would procure a pistol for him. But Jesse struggled with the idea of killing someone. He recalled, My affection for her was as great as any man's could be but to take the life of Mr. Whipple. I should do no such thing, that my love had never been for her property, but for herself. I would rather work myself to death, he explained, rather than be guilty of taking the life of her innocent husband. Elsie expressed shock towards Jessie's reaction to her plan. She told him how sorry she was that she had hurt his feelings, she never meant to imply that he was a murderer, or a man so cruel that he was capable of doing such a thing. The only reason why Elsie dared to ask for Jessie's help with such a dastardly deed was that she assumed Jessie loved her and wanted to help. Elsie told Jessie that if he was, quote, as resolute a man as others, and that my affection for her was as great as I pretended it was— I would have consented to it for the sake of her property. Elsie was devastated that Jessie would not help her. She would run away, yes, but that was her family's money, not John Whipple's. And why should she live a life of poverty because her husband was a greedy man? Jessie quoted Elsie as saying, She could not bear the thoughts of leaving all her property with Whipple to spend on another woman. All John wanted was her money, not her, she told Jessie. Perhaps Jessie did not love her as he claimed he did, she told him. And since Jessie clearly did not care about her, then their relationship would have to come to an end. Their relationship would return to what it was before. In other words, Elsie was about to turn off the sex tap. It was a busy house, and everyone had eyes on Elsie, so it was difficult to pull off, but the two had managed a romp in one of the spare rooms at Cherry Hill. They were also able to get away one night to a public house in Troy, New York, where they checked in as a married couple and spent the night. After John returned to Cherry Hill from a work trip later that month, Elsie confided in Jessie that John had struck her. Jessie responded, "'Shan't I waylay and kill him?' "'Yes,' Elsie said. But Jessie just couldn't do it. He couldn't take someone's life. Elsie responded by essentially saying, "'Fine. If you're such a coward, then get me some arsenic and I'll kill the man myself.' 
This, Jesse had no problem with, so he made the trek to the town druggist for a teaspoon of arsenic. The day before he gave her the poison, she returned to tell him that it hadn't worked. She slipped some into his tea, but it didn't kill him. Hell, it hardly even made him sick. She threw the rest of the powder into the fireplace after drugging John, so Jesse returned to the druggist for more. But when she went to give him the poison the next day, he became suspicious of her, saying that the tea the previous day had given him cramps. To Elsie's horror, John told her and their son to have the drink first to be sure it was safe. Elsie managed to take a swig and spit it out without her husband noticing, but the child downed it before Elsie could stop him. Luckily, this arsenic, too, was ineffective, and the child was fine. But I mean, parents of the year, am I right? Anyway, Elsie realized the arsenic was a dumb plan and thought of others. Perhaps they could hire someone else to kill John— but then they would need money for that too, and who would she even approach for such a thing? So she scratched that plan. She had who she needed. Jessie. By April 10th, 1827, Elsie and Jessie were plotting to kill John Whipple. Anyway, Elsie had things to use to her advantage, like the fact that not only she wanted her husband dead— Elsie and Jessie began to spread rumors that drifters were seen lurking around the Cherry Hill property, so that when they finally killed John, everyone would look outside of the family for suspects. At the beginning of April, Elsie informed Jessie that her husband would be taking a trip to Vermont, and that this would be the perfect opportunity for them to act on their plans. She said he could use an axe or whatever if he wanted— but that she could give him one of John's pistols to make it easier. Jesse replied that he had never used a pistol before in his life, and that he, quote, should be as likely to kill anyone else of the family as him, end quote. He said he needed a two-barrel rifle, but those were too expensive for the amount of money they could get their hands on, so they settled on purchasing a single-barrel one. Now, the plan was for Jesse to shoot John through the window at night. Elsie gave Jesse $25, and he went into Albany, purchased a $15 rifle, got some candies for the children of Cherry Hill, and then gave the change back to Elsie, who reportedly used it to buy some lace. A girl's gotta have her priorities, you know. Jesse prepared by whittling some lead into bullets. Elsie had once heard of a man shooting someone through a window and missing because the glass deflected the bullet, so she set Jesse up in the woods outside Cherry Hill with some panes of glass to shoot through as target practice. As I said, priorities, lace and target practice. With all of Cherry Hill on high alert for prowlers, John Whipple also saw the need to protect himself and kept a gun by his side. John loaded his pistol one night, only for Elsie to remove the ammo and bring it to Jesse. Quote, Mr. Whipple is loading his pistol to save his own life. I had taken the last ball he had left for you to kill him with. 
What a wicked creature I am, she cackled. The lovers arranged a signal outside of the house for Elsie to alert Jesse to which room of the house John would be in on the night of the murder. Jesse was, to everyone at Cherry Hill at least, supposed to be in the city, away from Cherry Hill when the shooting occurred. In reality, the plan was for him to hide outside until it was time, shoot John, run as fast as he could back to the main road, and then walk back to Cherry Hill as though he were simply returning from Albany. The day before the murder, when the household was away at church, Elsie managed to stay behind for one last romp in the haystack with Jesse. Okay, I was being dramatic about the haystack part, but they really did do it in the barn while everyone was off at church for the very last time. See, she had to seal the deal. On Monday, May 7th, 1827, Jesse Strang and Elsie Whipple met outside the home while it lightly rained on them. Elsie told Jesse that she would leave a pair of socks under his pillow before nightfall. She instructed Jesse to remove his shoes before the murder and wear the socks to muffle any noise. After they all had dinner, Elsie would accompany her husband to wherever he planned to retire, and then she would go down and leave a signal for him on a post outside the house to let Jesse know which room John would be in. Jesse said that depending on where John ended up, he would station himself either in the hayloft or on top of the back shed. After the shooting, Jesse would dispose of the gun in the river or a well. To establish an alibi, Elsie had Jesse approach Miss Henrietta Patrick, John's niece, to ask her to make him some pantaloons, for he intended to go with Mr. Whipple on his next trip. When she said she couldn't, Jesse told her that he would just go into town that evening to get them. John overheard Jesse saying this and instructed him to be on the lookout for those prowlers he had seen. Joseph, if you see any of those men about the house, be sure to shoot them. So Jesse left, walked into town and into the drugstore where he bought lavender oil for one of the horses and some cloth for his pantaloons. The tailor told Jesse that it was too late to do anything about his pantaloons that night and that he should return the next day. So he began his trek down South Market Street, down to Church Street, up Ferry Street and toward South Pearl Street, which he followed until he found himself back at Cherry Hill. The day's rains cleared the night skies and provided Jesse with the perfect conditions to see into the home. He looked down at the kitchen and spotted Elsie smoking on a window bench. He saw the old and infirm Maria Van Rensselaer sitting in her room next to the fire, and knew, even without Elsie's signal, that John was not on the north side of the home. He walked down to the kitchen porch, and, finding no signal left out for him, he proceeded to the hayloft. He was facing into the Whipple's bedroom, and saw a figure inside, but couldn't be sure of who it was from that angle and distance, so he dismounted and walked over to the shed attached to the back of Cherry Hill. 
It was a rectangular-shaped shed that was almost as high as the second-story windows. Someone could climb up, walk across the roof, and then all they had to do was crouch down a bit to be eye-level with those inside the second floor. Jesse took off his coat and shoes, rolled his socks on, and then carried a crate over to the side of the shed. He crawled on top of the crate, realized it was actually too short, jumped off, then went off in search of another box to help him climb higher. Once he found another crate, he climbed them both to the roof of the shed and sidled along the clapboard over to the window, where Elsie had rolled the curtain up to let him see in. Inside was John Whipple and the 22-year-old Van Rensselaer son, Abraham, seated on the far side of the room in a low rocking chair. Far enough from John that he would be scared shitless, but safe when he fired. John was seated at a desk on the far side of the room, facing away from the windows. Jesse took small, careful steps toward the window, cocked the rifle, and placed the muzzle against the window pane. He aimed just below John's left shoulder and fired. The shot scared him, as did John's reaction. John Whipple yelled, Oh, Lord, and stumbled out of the room and into the hallway. Jesse scrambled to his senses, realized he had to flee, and hurried over to where he arranged his makeshift ladder. And then the idiot slipped. His rifle went one way, up in the air, and John's body went tumbling downward past the box ladder to the earth, where his torso hit with a thud. He instantly jumped to his feet, automatically yelling out, Thank God I'm not hurt! before he remembered he was supposed to be quiet. When gravity finally pulled down his rifle, too, Jesse grabbed it and booked it into the woods. It was only about 15 minutes since Jesse returned from the city to kill John Whipple. He flung his stuff over the fence, disposed of the evidence in the woods, put his coat and shoes back on, and then headed towards the main road leading to Cherry Hill. Once there, he strolled back towards the home, where he was greeted at the door by the enslaved cook, Dinah Jackson, who let him in, saying, Come in, Mr. Whipple is shot. Jesse feigned shock and ran up the staircase to find John Whipple collapsed at the top, his feet sticking out over the first steps. At this, at confronting what he had done, Jesse turned a shade of white that did not go unnoticed by young Abraham, who had just witnessed a murder. When the physician arrived shortly after, he pronounced John Whipple dead. Jesse, meanwhile, was sent around the estate, fastening windows to keep the ladies safe and being sent to fetch a coroner. When he returned, another coroner had already been found, and Jesse was sworn into the coroner's inquest to investigate the murder he had just committed. But Jesse could not keep it cool. He continued talking about the alleged prowlers so extensively that people began to wonder why he was so dead set on the murderer being unknown to John. 
And then, when the bullet was removed from the corpse, everyone gathered around to see it, except for Doc. He was the only one uninterested in seeing what kind of bullet had been used, and others at the inquest wanted to know why. Because, here's the thing. This all may have been planned by Elsie, thinking that she could outwit the others, and who knows, maybe she could have on her own, but she had chosen probably the most bumbling of fools for an accomplice, and however extensively she had planned and insisted on Jesse's cooperation, he was incapable of incriminating himself every time he opened his mouth. Thus, Jesse, a.k.a. Joseph Orton, was arrested on suspicion of murder. The two lovers had made a pact before carrying out their plans, with each promising the other to keep their mouths shut if arrested, and if for some reason one was destined to hang, the other would also offer themselves up to the scaffold so that they would die together. That did not happen. It did not take long for Jesse to confess to his affair with Elsie, and Elsie being dragged into the investigations. Two weeks after Jesse's arrest, Elsie, too, was taken into custody. For whatever reason, they allowed her to stay on the same floor of the jail as Jesse, and Elsie convinced the jailer to leave her door open for fresh air. So, at night, she would lie down on the floor in front of Jesse's cell to talk to him, or at least to scold him for saying anything to the authorities. She told him that if he kept his mouth shut, neither of them would be in jail, that they'd both be in Montreal if he listened to her. Jesse had a hard time finding legal representation, but was eventually represented by a lawyer from Poughkeepsie, Thomas Oakley, and upon hearing that Elsie would now testify against him and realizing how different the circumstances were for the two, Jesse began to panic. So at about 10 p.m. Thursday night, Jesse called for the jailer, saying that he couldn't take it anymore and had to confess. I was guilty, Jesse explained, and Mrs. Whipple was the foundation of the whole of it. He told them where to find the leftover arsenic and where he hid the rifle in the woods. Both were found the next day, but the police had to take Jesse to the crime scene to point out the broken glass he practiced shooting through and the three bullets lodged in the trees behind them, since this is what connected Elsie to the murder. Jesse believed, or was made to believe, that Elsie's family connections would never allow her to hang for the murder, and that if he managed to rope Elsie into the trial, her family would swoop in and bail them both out. Possibly even get a governor's pardon. It was impossible to believe that the New York aristocracy would let one of their own hang, particularly a woman like Elsie, who represented values that their society very much wanted to preserve. The district attorney and his lawyer finally told Jesse to cut it out, that no amount of guilt on Elsie's part would exonerate him. 
Jesse was guilty of murder, and Jesse would pay. He didn't realize that, yes, New York's leading families rallied behind Elsie Whipple, but in rallying behind Elsie, they were going against Jesse to do so, not helping him. Elsie would go free by ensuring that Jesse Strang was hanged. Besides, there was far too much evidence against Jesse to let him go, not that anyone wanted to. Jesse Strang, with his shifty drifter ways and shady past, made an excellent villain. A William Wilson testified that the spring before the murder, Jesse had pointed the shed out to him. Quote, he said there was a fine place to shoot in, pointing to the shed and the window, end quote. After the murder, Wilson asked Jesse if he remembered saying that to him, and Jesse replied with a yes, and then simply walked away. Dinah Jackson, the home's enslaved cook, heard Jesse in the process of murdering John Whipple. That night, she heard strange sounds like someone was opening a window before a shot rang out. She thought it was very odd that upon unleashing the home's dog, he refused to hunt down the killer, making her wonder if the dog already knew the man outside. In July of 1827, the state of New York officially abolished slavery, allowing Dinah to testify at the trial. And when she spoke, she told everyone that Jesse had actually approached her in the days leading up to the murder and offered her $500 to put arsenic into John Whipple's food. When she refused, saying, I won't sell my soul to hell for all of the world, Jesse tried to play it off as though it were a joke. Dinah wasn't buying it. No one was buying it, and the court found Jesse Strang guilty of murder. Elsie, however, was found innocent. According to her, Elsie was seduced and coerced by Jesse. She knew about the arsenic poisoning but couldn't stop it because Jesse threatened to implicate her if she did. In fact, Elsie claimed that she had warned her husband prior to his murder, but that he didn't take her seriously. He laughed her off, and yes, she gave Jesse the glass, but only so that he could fix a broken window. And yeah, she gave him socks and the $20 that he used to buy the rifle, but she was just following orders, as good women like her ought to do. Maria Van Rensselaer spoke up in Elsie's favor. It didn't seem like it because Maria went on and on about how hysterical and deranged Elsie was, just like her mother was also insane, but this was all said to let Elsie off the hook. Though the court found Elsie, quote, frivolous, weak, vain, imprudent, and wicked, and guilty to a certain extent, end quote, this did not make her guilty of murder. All of the evidence against Elsie was given by Jesse. When Jesse was found guilty of murder, the court also declared him unfit to be a witness in Elsie's trial. He was a convicted murderer, after all. How trustworthy could his testimony be? The district attorney, then, was Edward Livingston, from another prestigious New York family, and would later be a 
congressman, senator, and secretary of state under Andrew Jackson. D.A. Livingston concluded that the state could no longer prosecute Elsie because there was no evidence against her without Jesse's testimony, and dropped the case. The jurors found Elsie not guilty without even having to leave their seats. Jesse, meanwhile, began penning an account of his crimes in order to set the record straight, and in Jesse's version, Elsie was the murder mastermind. She asked for the murder, she planned it, provided the funding and ammunition, and arranged signals to let Jesse know the position of her husband inside the home. Elsie walked into her husband's bedroom and rolled up the curtain so that her lover would have a clear shot. Elsie gave Jesse the panes of glass to practice the murder beforehand. Jesse hoped this all would give him some sympathy, but many were even more convinced of Jesse's wickedness after reading his confession, for they believed it was the desperate act of a condemned man who was desperate not to hang alone and would take an innocent woman down with him if he could. Judge Dewar, who tried the cases, gave a lengthy condemnation of Jesse Strang upon sentencing him to death. You say nothing. Nothing is to be said. The crime for which you are to suffer is the deepest die, of the most atrocious character, and your guilt has been most clearly established by your own confession. You planned and executed the destruction of the deceased with the most deliberate and perfidious cruelty. Not with the ferocity of a tiger, but with the cunning of the serpent and the malignity of a fiend. Impelled by lust and avarice, you directed your subtle machinations to the possession of the person and property of his wife. The judge continued. You commenced by seducing this weak, infatuated woman from her allegiance to her husband, beguiled her from her duty, and ended her ruin with the murder of her husband. Justice has been swift to overtake you, and you now stand convicted, trembling and weeping before a tribunal of your fellow men. You have indeed pursued your career of blood, regardless of God or man. As for Elsie, Judge Dewar noted, she can only look to some solitary nook where she may hide her head until she is summoned to her last account. Let her, therefore, go and sin no more. A shrouded Jesse String marched to the gallows on August 24, 1827, as peddlers sold pamphlets to the overwhelming crowd. An astounding 10 to 40,000 spectators came to see Jesse Strang hang on Albany's Gallows Hill. Jesse Strang mounted the gallows and held a pamphlet up to the crowd, titled, The Authentic Confession of Jesse Strang. He addressed the mob, saying, quote, This contains a full confession of the great transaction for which I am about to die 
and every single word that it contains, to the best of my knowledge, is true. If there has been a single word in it that is not true, it has been inserted by mistake and not by design. One account tells that, after a few contortions in the air, the spirited convict passed away. This is not what happened. Instead, when the noose was placed around his neck, it slipped to the side, and an equally horrified and delighted crowd watched for nearly half an hour as Jesse dangled by his neck, slowly suffocating to death. The execution was so prolonged and torturous that New York decided it was time to end hanging as a capital punishment there. Jesse Strang was the last man publicly hanged to death in New York. Elsie was in New York City at the time he died, and she did, in fact, go, though, let's be honest, she probably did sin a bunch more, but whatever. What fun is life without some sin, right? She ended up remarrying a man with the last name of Freeman in New Jersey, but he died soon after, so the double widow returned to New York. She reportedly lived in depression with her half-brother in Onondaga, New York, before dying in 1832, only five years after she orchestrated the murder of her husband. She died according to one contemporary source, of the vengeance of an offended god. Or it could have been the opium she got hooked on. The main account we have of the Cherry Hill murder was told by Jesse Strang himself. I doubt Elsie would ever have been allowed to tell her own tale, even if she wanted to, because it made the Van Rensselaer family look pretty bad. Elsie's story would also point out some glaring holes in the American justice system of the time, like the fact that it allowed for murder to be excused if it was perpetrated by someone with money or connections. And the prevailing opinion of the day was that Elsie, as a woman, was incapable of masterminding a murder. They didn't believe women were capable of such barbarism, nor did they believe she had the intellectual capacity to plan ahead on a large scale. And then, society did not want to admit how easy it obviously was for Elsie to manipulate men like Jesse. Women were not meant to outsmart men, which of course only made it a zillion times easier for women to outsmart them and then get away with it. There is proof that Elsie was involved in her husband's murder. The curtain she rolled up, the glass she gave him to do the target practice, the socks to sneak quietly across the shed, the money she gave Jesse to purchase the rifle and arsenic, arsenic that only she had the opportunity to give her husband, and the rifle and arsenic themselves that were found in the woods afterward, right where Jesse told the police constable they would be. But this is still Jesse Strang's version of events. He had every reason to bend the truth and try to scrounge up some sympathy for himself, and he even asked for his lawyer to help him plant some fake documents, allegedly written by Elsie in order to help get him off the hook. And 
the letters from Elsie that were published in Jesse's pamphlet, the same passed around and sold at his execution, were not transcribed from actual letters written by her, for she instructed Jesse to burn them all after reading. Thus, whatever love letters were published were how Jesse remembered the letters, not what she actually wrote, and who knows if he was actually writing down what he remembered or what he wanted to remember. As with most women we talk about, very little is known about Elsie and her experiences and desires, so it's hard to say for certain what motivated her to have her husband murdered. It might very well have been a Florence Bravo situation where she was trying to escape abuse. Or it may just be that Elsie Whipple was a wicked, wicked creature. Thank you for returning to Old Blood for Season 3. I'm so happy to be back getting my research on and sharing it all with you. If you enjoyed the episode, please spare a moment to give us a rating or a review. Please see our show notes for a complete list of our sources, or go to oldbloodpodcast.com. I upload tons of photos and information about each episode to our Instagram, which you can find by searching for Old Blood Podcast. Thank you, Shane Ivers at SilvermanSound.com for the music. And I will see you in three weeks for episode 37.